0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 50 through 52.
1: So we are in chapter 50, right? Book of Isaiah. And let me warn you, my friends. You know, often we get into a Bible study with Chuck Missler and we get into way out left field kind of stuff. And I have to admit that I sometimes you know, sort of look for mischief and things, and it's kind of fun. But in Isaiah, you don't need to. Isaiah is going to get, on his own, <laughs> pretty wild stuff. So um, to back away from the book for a minute and just get the overview, the first 35 chapters are of a certain style, a very, what I'll call an Old Testament style, a lot of judgments of nations and, and what I sometimes <laughs> call a dirge, with little... Nuggets thrown in, indeed, but still, it's heavy stuff. Then there's a four-chapter interlude that is historical, 36 through 39. Same material as in Second Kings. In fact, this people believe this passage in Second Kings was written by Isaiah. But now when we hit chapter 40, we're at a turning point, change of style. Very, very messianic, increasingly so. Orchestrated like a symphony a little hint of a theme, and then a little later it surfaces again, a little louder and then louder, and it's coming. The crescendo is going to be chapter 53, and we'll probably hit that next week. It'll be a suitable climax. We'll need a break after chapter 53. Some scholars call it the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. Chapter 50 and 51 and 52 are building up to that climax, so be prepared for some interesting stuff. Book of Isaiah, written, of course, by Isaiah. And again, just to remind you, and I mention this because there may be new people here, don't let anyone tell you that there were two Isaiahs. That's utter nonsense. How do I know that? From John 12. John 12 quotes from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 and attributes them both to the same Isaiah. So those of you that have heard these pseudo-intellectual tales of two Isaiahs, dismiss it as intellectual arrogance. I've come to the conclusion the more PhDs you see after a name, each one is a sign of insecurity. Piled higher and deeper, someone says. Somebody else says it means phenomenally dumb, but whatever. (laughs) Your guide to the Bible is the Bible. It's not Chuck Missler or some guy on the TV or the radio. Your guide to the Bible is the Bible, the Holy Spirit. And there isn't any heresy I've run into that isn't anticipated by the Holy Spirit specifically who wrote the five books of Moses. Moses did. Jesus said so. Quotes from each of the five and tributes to Moses. Don't anyone waste your time with that foolishness. It sounds good. It sounds intellectual. Anyway, chapter 50, thus saith the Lord. Boy, that's the introduction. When that comes across, the prophet is speaking for God. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement or whom I have put away? Now, what the Lord is dealing with here is an idiom that is used by some of the other prophets. Hosea speaks of Israel, the nation, as the adulterous wife of Jehovah, or Yahweh. It's an idiom used of the nation. She is spoken of as the wife that is unfaithful because she went whoring after false gods. That's the linguistic tie together. But in particularly in Hosea, but other places too, that idiom is used of the nation. And indeed, there is a sense in which that is obviously appropriate. But God here is making the point. He hasn't abandoned them. He says, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, or have I put, uh, put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? He's implying that he'd be justified in doing so. The way Israel has responded to God, he'd be justified in getting rid of them. Moses recommended it. You gave me these people. At one time, he was a little frustrated with them. Another time, he was willing to give up a salvation for them. Only two people, in my knowledge, in the Bible, that do that. Moses said at one time. Paul said another thing. He says if it were possible, he'd give up a salvation for Israel. I'll let the people who don't believe in eternal security wrestle with that one. He said if it were possible. Interesting, isn't it? I don't believe God offers a salvation that is not eternal. Anyone who doesn't believe in eternal security hasn't done his homework on the cross. What really happened on the cross. But that's another subject. Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? He's being, of course, uh, in a sense, facetious. Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. Figures of speech, but again, it's not God is doing it. It's your iniquities. You've chosen that role is what God is saying. Wherefore, when I came... Was there no man when I called? Was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, and I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die for thirst. Isaiah is graphic when he wants to. be. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. That's the figure of speech that is not unique to Isaiah. The Holy Spirit does that in a number of places. Jeremiah 4.28, Ezekiel 32.18, Joel 2.10, 3.15, Matthew 24.29, Mark 13.24, Luke 21.25, Revelation 6.12. By the way, how many are those? Seven. Good guess. Good guess. Isn't that interesting? I'm always fascinated with structure. Not that it's a big deal, it just shows the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit in design. We obviously, it won't serve our purpose to go through all of those, but it might be instructive to take a couple of them. Obviously, the Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 are passages from the Olivet Discourse. Let's just take the Matthew 24 passage to give you a flavor of what I'm saying is in all of these, in effect. Matthew 24, 29... Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened the moon shall not give its light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory so there's a prophetic sign watch for it I'm kidding of course that's has that happened There are those that say this, Matthew 24, is already fulfilled. The abomination of desolation happened in 70 A.D. Well, if that's the case, there's an awful lot of other things that seem to have to be allegorized. No, no. Abomination of desolation has not happened yet. It is about to happen. I mean, that is its yet future. And what we're talking about here is after the tribulation. Now, we might also see the same kind of language in Revelation chapter 6. I'm just picking a couple out of the seven that I rattled off. But let's take Revelation chapter 6. Picking up at verse 12, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. The Son of Man has the seven-sealed book in his hand. He's opening the seals. He's opened five of them. And when he gets to the sixth seal, Lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. There's that phrase again, the sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of by a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together. There's that phrase again. Idioms from tensor calculus, talking about the very curvilinear aspect of space, strangely enough, here, when it's rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Interesting allusion to fig trees. I'll let you run with that one. But notice the sackcloth of hair, the same idiom that Isaiah uses here in chapter 50, verse 3. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make the sackcloth their covering. Interesting phrase. I don't mean to make too much of these things, but I think it's fascinating to see the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit pervade Isaiah, eight centuries before Christ was born, or the book of Revelation by John, you see his craftsmanship, his handiwork, shows through. Dramatic, dramatic changes on the horizon. But these things occur at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, the climax of the day of Jehovah, or the day of Yahweh, if you will, the day of the Lord. End of the tribulation. That's at the end of the seven-year period, the last half of which is the tribulation. Tribulation is not seven years. It's three and a half years. The last half of the 70th week of Daniel. And for lots of reasons, the 70th week of Daniel can't start until some other circumstances occur which have to follow the rapture, at least in one person's view. Don't take my word for it. Check it out. But For what it's worth, that's the the viewpoint I hold. Verse 4. The Lord God... Hath given me the tongue of the learned or disciples that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awaketh morning by morning. He waketh mine ear to hear like the learned or like the disciple. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned. Has the Lord given you the tongue of the learned? You know, it's interesting in the book of Acts, just to pick one of many, many examples, but let's just take one as example. Philip is in Samaria. Having a revival, things are going great. People are coming to the Lord. It's fabulous. The Lord says, "Go down to Gaza to the wilderness." Philip doesn't say why. I mean, everything's going well here. You want me to go in the de- desert? No. He doesn't he just goes right? When he gets there, he finds the Ethiopian treasurer, big entourage. The guy was accountable for all the wealth of Ethiopia. He didn't travel alone. We always see little sketches in Sunday school books of this guy in a chariot. Hey, there was a caravan, bodyguards, a whole entourage. And this guy apparently had visited Jerusalem. What did he find in Jerusalem? Dead formalism. Emptiness. Procedures without meaning. They gave him a tour. He, a guy like that, they gave him a grand tour, right? Showed him the treasures of the temple. I always like to visualize him saying, well, how come this is torn here from the top to bottom? But that's another. <laughs> but he came away apparently discouraged, but he apparently did come away. If he didn't have it before, he apparently acquired in Jerusalem some uh, scrolls of the Old Testament. All of them, or at least anyway, he was reading Isaiah. Reading Isaiah 53, it turns out, the one we're going to study next week. And uh, Philip has the guts, the auspah, if I may, <laughs> to go to him and say, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I, lest that be guided? He has him come up, and and Philip shows him the Messiah out of Isaiah 53. Could you have done that? See, one of the things, you know, we always talk about the idea that, okay, you know, to really be a witness for the Lord, you have to be open to it, you got to respond to His call, and so forth. Great. Something else you got to do that we often sort of overlook. Philip had done his homework. Philip knew Isaiah 53. He was able, and, probably, and obviously a lot more. That happened to be what the guy needed, and that happened to be what Philip was able to do. Now you can say, well, gee, the Holy Spirit enlightened him. Yeah, I'm sure he did, and yet... Don't dismiss the fact that he'd done his homework. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Among the many things we'll talk about tonight, I want to leave that thought with you. Have you done your homework? There's no cliché on the street. They say that luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Well, how do you get lucky? Be prepared. The opportunities will come. Are you prepared? Have you done your homework? Have you done your homework? It's not a spectator sport, my friends. It's a grand adventure. That means you participate. And you participate. Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season. Oh, a word in season. To him who is weary. Boy, I can't tell you what a word in season can mean when you're weary. As you know, we've gone through a pretty tough year. I was greeted in the back by an old friend. And he made an interesting observation. He says, Chuck, I've known you for a long time. I've never seen you happier. He's absolutely, I've never been more broke. I've never worked harder, but we've never been happier. And uh, praise God. But boy, what, what the encouragement of an old friend means. And the letters I've gotten from you people. Incredible. Incredible. I can't tell you what that means. Speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awaketh morning by morning. He waketh Mine ear to hear like the learned. Morning by morning is actually a Hebrew phrase meaning continually, but that's okay. We get, the, we get the gist of it. The Lord God hath pierced mine ear, or opened, but pierced my ear. And I was not rebellious, neither turned backward. Piercing of the ear. This isn't speaking of opening the ear so you can hear better, although that wouldn't hurt the meaning, but that's not what I think it says. I think the piercing of the ear refers to something else. It has to do with a procedure. It alludes to a procedure where... In those days, if you were in debt and you indentured yourself in servitude to pay the debt, your servitude would end at one of two occasions, either when you paid your contract out or if the Jubilee year fell. And that, of course, probably reflected in the contract because they all knew when that was supposed to happen. So the point is, is that at that point, you, in theory, would be free to go. However, in real life, it turned out, often, the servant, by then, was so... So enjoyed the hospitality of the household that he voluntarily chose to serve the house for the rest of his life. And they called that kind of a servant a bond slave. It was a a position of merit. The ceremony that established the relationship was to take an awl, or what you and I might call an ice pick, a sharp instrument, and pierce the ear to the doorpost of the house. You girls do it all the time, don't you? Right? Maybe you don't do it to a doorpost. You know, the idea of the symb- symbolism was that the person became bonded to the house, the household. See, and so uh, then he became what's called a bond slave, or in the Greek, the doulos. And and uh, being pierced, they often uh, you know they'd wear a ring. It was a, it was a, it was a badge of merit. A, a, it was rank. He wasn't a menial servant of servitude. He was a bond slave. He wore that with pride. And it's interesting that Paul and John both use the term bondslave of themselves, bondslave of Jesus Christ. It's interesting the book of Revelation was not written to the saints. Well, it was, but it was really written to the duolos, the bondservants of Jesus Christ. Are you a bondservant? Are you really a bondservant? Have you given yourself to the servitude of the lordship of Jesus Christ? See, then the Lord God hath pierced mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned backward. Okay, now I'd like to pause here, and uh, before we get into a solution, I'd like to explore a bit the problem. Turn with me for some review to Luke chapter 24. It's interesting how in some of these familiar stories there are issues that are troublesome, that that leave us a little um, disturbed at times. Luke chapter 24, we of course have the resurrection in the first 12 verses, the morning, what we call Easter morning, and then in verse 13, picking up at about verse 13, we have the famous event that I'm so fond of called the Emmaus Road experience. Two disciples are on their way to Emmaus, which is about seven-mile walk. It's quite a walk. As they walked along, they talked, and it's interesting that as they were talking to each other, Jesus himself joins them. But verse 16 has a strange phrase that none of us know what it means. But their eyes were holding that they should not recognize him. What does that mean? I have no idea. Some scholars say, well, they were supernaturally veiled so they couldn't see who Christ was. Well, that's a possibility. I don't reject it. But I'm intrigued because these two disciples were disciples. They're not not of the twelve, perhaps, but they were followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, they're quite upset because they're walking along and they're really blue. They're really down. They're really discouraged over the events of the recent days. And Jesus says to them, What manner of communication are these that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? What's the problem, guys? One of them, his name was Cleopas, answering, said to him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast thou not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And Jesus says, I love this. What things? (laughs) You know, like what's new, you know? (laughs) What things? Jesus is very, I find him very amusing here, because he talks about himself later in the third person. The Lord Jesus Christ, talking about himself in the third person. I think it's interesting. He said, What things? He said to them, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And we'd hoped it had been he who would have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also in our company amazed us who were early at the sepulcher, and they found not his body. They came saying, They'd also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even as the women had said, but him they saw not. So they recount to this stranger a summary of the depressing events, as far as they're concerned, of the last few days. And the more I read this, the more puzzled I am. Were they followers of Jesus Christ? And he's standing there. Why didn't they recognize him? They don't know who he is. He's a stranger. He's standing right there. They don't know who he is. Hey, stranger, don't you know what's going on? Hey, let me tell you. And they explained to him uh, what was going on. Verse 25, Then he said unto them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? I love that phrase. Here's Christ talking to them, third person. Haven't you guys done your homework? Then, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew near unto the village to which they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. He went in to tarry with them. So here's a guy they spent seven miles walking with, and he gave them an Old Testament Bible study on prophecy. Don't ever apologize for a Inappropriate interest in prophecy. You guys are prophecy nuts. Yes, we are. Fanatics. Why? Because the first thing Jesus Christ did after his resurrection was to give an Old Testament prophecy Bible study. But then a strange thing came to pass that he sat eating with them. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That's strange. I thought he was the guest. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. Their eyes were open. Now what happened? Some scholars validly say, well, whatever supernatural thing was veiling him was removed, and they now saw who he was. That's, I can't quarrel with that. But there's another view that I tend to lean toward, that they, when they saw him break the bread, something happened to let them realize who it was that was sitting at the table. And the conjecture is, it's a conjecture, I want to emphasize that, is that they, saw, they probably saw the nail prints in his wrists. Or we say in his hands, but actually the wrists. Interesting. Why did they not recognize him at first? Something's going on here. Okay, then we go a little further. Verse 33. You see he van- And then immediately when they know who he is, he vanishes because he's got a date back in Jerusalem. And at uh, the same hour, he returns to Jerusalem. They're all gathered, and they're ready to eat bread. And uh, verse 36, as they spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and frightened, supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now, I'm puzzled by that, too. If they saw a spirit that looked like Christ, they might be startled, might be surprised. Why would they be frightened? Frightened of the Lord? Come on, gang. They may be a little confused. It's been a tough time last few days. But they're terrified and frightened. He said, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Here again, he identifies himself... He apparently needs to, with his hands and his feet. Behold my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Handle me and see, A spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. He's tangible. He's not an ephemeral, you know, holographic image or something. He is tangible. You know that several. He said, first of all, spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. It doesn't say flesh and blood. Flesh and bones as ye see me have. And we he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, believed, while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? <laughs> you know, it's not your run-of-the-mill ghost says, Hey, I'm hungry. You got something to eat? You know? no, no, he's tangible, his resurrection body. But there's something about him that bothers them. He has to show them his wounds to confirm who it is that's standing before Him. Rather interesting. Let's pop over to John chapter 20. And again, we're in a post-resurrection period here. Mary Magdalene, verse 11, Mary stood outside of the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down, and looked in the sepulcher, and seeth two angels sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said, And because they have taken away my Lord, I love that, my Lord, not the Lord, my Lord. Can you say that? Is he your Lord? And I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. She worshipped him like probably none other like probably none other and she didn't know it was Jesus and what Jesus said unto her woman why weepest thou whom seekest thou she supposing him to be the gardener that interests me for several reasons first of all she just assumes he's some kind of hireling she doesn't know who he is it's also interesting that the first gardener blew it. A guy by the name of Adam. <laughs> this gardener undid what Adam screwed up. Kind of interesting phrase. She thought he was a gardener. I like that. She's thinking thing of the gardener. Saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him from here, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Now I'd like to see that. This kid, this gal, is going to take the body. Show me where he is, I'm going to take him away. I don't know where she could take him but you can just see where she's coming from. Then verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Interesting passage. question I have for you tonight is, I'm puzzled. The, 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 the disciples on the English Road don't recognize him. In the upper room, they don't recognize him because he, he uh, has to show them his, his wounds to, to verify his identity. Here's Mary, who loved him, doesn't recognize him in the garden until she really hears his voice, apparently. My conjecture is that it was the voice that tipped her off. But something's wrong here.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.